0: Star Trek, Mumble's second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam.
1: Save the whales.
0: This week, we are discussing Star Trek Four, The Voyage Home, which I think most people colloquially refer to as the one with the whales.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Released on November 26th, 1986. The film was directed by Leonard Nimoy and written by Nicholas Meyer, who directed Wrath of Khan, Steve Mearson, Peter Krikes, and Harve Bennett, who, of course, is a big Star Trek television writer that we've talked about before. The story was actually just by Harve Bennett and Leonard Nimoy. However, Leonard Nimoy was given much greater creative control and more time and some more resources to direct this film. So quick summary, Kirk and the crew prepare to return to Earth from Vulcan, where they were at the end of the last film, to stand trial for their actions on Genesis. Meanwhile, a mysterious probe enters the system, emitting a signal that depowers any starship or space station in the vicinity. Spock discovers that the signal is an attempt to contact humpback whales, a species that has long been extinct in the 23rd century. It's up to Kirk and the crew to go back in time to 1986 and bring back the whales before Earth is destroyed. All right, Sam, what were your first reactions to this film?
1: Well, as you know, I've I've seen this movie before.
0: Yeah, that is right. This is one of the very few Star Trek things you've seen.
1: Right. And I mean, I saw it, I imagine, before you were born. I think I saw it pretty close to its release date. I'm guessing that by the time you might be paying attention to such things, the Save the Whale fervor had died down. But to be alive in the 80s is to be very familiar with the Save the Whales movement. So this is very much I don't know. I mean what what's the what's the animal that is like the symbol for the most endangered species today? I mean, I guess there's so many things wrong with the world right now. We don't even talk I was about, about that to say anymore.
0: pandas, wolves, but I think whales too, because we had blackfish, that documentary about sea world.
1: right. So I mean, yeah, that might have been the start of a new wave of that. So I mean, I think what Leonard Nimoy is doing is trying to take advantage of a lot of current events the nuclear stuff as well, for sure. But also that wildlife conservation and the ethics of raising uh, wild animals in captivity. Uh, we, we get a redux of this about a decade later with free Willy. This is probably a much better movie than that. Um, <laughs> now, like when you said that there was a probe at the beginning, I was like, Beeger?
0: This is definitely a setup that we've seen before, not only in Star Trek as a franchise, but just even within the film franchise we've seen this setup before. Is this the best version of it though?
1: Well, what I'm trying to decide is whether or not I think this is a better movie than Wrath of Khan.
0: Really? I, well, yeah,
1: I mean, well, you knew I think that. And and the thing about it is is um well, okay. Wrath of Khan is the best classic Star Trek. If you were going to show somebody one film and go this is Star Trek as a concept concept <laughs> right but i think this is the best movie in terms of film cinema movie
0: <laughs> i mean that's fair the probe at the beginning does seem very mcguffney right it's a it's a thing that has to happen in order to get us to the thing which is to go back in time which is one of your favorite genres of storytelling going back in time. What? Yeah, this is
1: a year after Back to the Future by the way. Back to the Future is 85. You said this was 86, 86 right? 86, yeah. Yep.
0: And and they set the movie in 86. Like the when they go back in time, it is 86 that they are going back to. So contemporary. People get to dress in contemporary clothes, right? right? Everyone gets to dress in their street clothes for this movie. So, I have to ask because I have to ask, it you. What did you think of the time travel in this film? We see them travel back in time via a slingshot maneuver around the sun, which I don't know if that's like a real scientific concept that people have ever talked about, like if you could travel back in time that way. However, it is definitely a pop culture time travel method because we've seen it before in Star Trek. In fact, they jump to this conclusion very rapidly, right? Where they're like, we have to go get the whales. And Kirk is like, time travel. and Because they've done it before. They've done the slingshot maneuver. And we also have seen it in Superman, which we've talked about in another episode of Monkey Off My Backlog.
1: I really don't want to get this wrong, but I'm not going to look it up. So there are a couple ways to look at this. First of all, right? If I've got this right and I don't have it completely backward, Einstein hypothesized that in theory, if you could go fast enough, you could move forward through time, but you cannot move back. One of the good reasons to think about this is, as I've said before, the laws of thermodynamics seem to prevent it from, you know, purely out of its basic physical concepts of, you know, uh, entropy and you're starting to apply it more philosophically or at least in more of a quantum mindset. But basically there's a finite amount of energy in the universe. If you express it through heat, the way that the universe works is entropy means that when we, when we burn energy, when we create heat, we don't, we're we're using a a finite resource, and so to go backward is the opposite of that. It would violate that very fundamental principle. So you can't go back. I was thinking about this the other day in terms of teleportation.
0: Mm-hmm. We were which... just
1: watching first episode of the second season of Picard, and of course it's it's there, right the the beaming up and. That's how you
0: travel around Earth now. Well, you can right. go anywhere on Earth using a transporter.
1: So I was thinking about this, right? This, this kind of finite thing. And I wondered, and somebody who's seen a lot more Trek than I have and perhaps read even some of the uh, ancillary, if you will, works. So my question is, I wonder if beaming requires a transfer. Like it's not just sending particles one way it's replacing. So for instance, if you were to, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we consider empty space, right? Mm -hmm. For a while we were saying this was some of this at least was dark matter, you know, quarks and all that stuff. Right. But there's a lot of space that's occupied by things we don't really understand yet. And so, one of the ways that you get around entropy with uh, teleportation is the idea that you're not forcing additional cells into a space. You're taking the same amount of spell, uh, cells out. So it's a, it's a trade, right? And the reason I was thinking about that is... They did something really bad at the end of this movie, right? With the time travel. As we know from Back yeah. to the Future, you cannot change the past because it will destroy everything, right? Right. It'll cause the universe to go boom. And yet, they she was down. She was like, take me to the future. And they do. Now, I wonder if that is the same kind of principle as, like I said, is that might govern teleportation, you know, when they put themselves back in their present, they took, you know, things that we, maybe space that we don't account for in terms of physicality and moved that back. So it was like a swap.
0: Right. Although I don't know, that does bring up the interesting question of what about the space that the humpback whales and Amanda replace because they're bringing well, that's something wh- forward. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I
1: mean, you could substitute that for other quote-unquote empty space. And and the reason I'm saying all this and it's very, very complicated and why are we talking about this? It's just a pop culture thing is like, well, Star Trek is supposed to be more, It's not hard science fiction, is it, Tessa?
0: No, not at all. Right. Not but, at all. But
1: I mean, like, there's supposed to be some... You know, they call it a warp drive, and that's supposed to mean something, right? You know, it's not hard science, but these things are not supposed to be fantastic. It's purely. not made up.
0: Like, it's not completely right. made up. So, I mean, in the sense of so they not, didn't just come up with new technology to explain how this works, like, it is based on real technology. It doesn't perhaps work in ways that would actually work.
1: Right. So, I mean, I don't think it's idle to try and explain how some of these things work. If it's matter displacement, is how the teleportation and how the time travel works. I mean, I'm not going to look at it anymore. I'm not going to poke it any more than that. But it seems like a really big plot hole if you don't have some sort of consideration for it, which they didn't. But it was very enjoyable overall. The you know, It was a much more fun approach to time travel than Back to the Future was, which Back to the Future was fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do get a lot of it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in terms of Back to the Future, like how close it was actually in production to Back to the Future. But it is interesting that like you get two different time travel films that kind of have a similar vibe to them in some ways coming out a year after each other or one at the year after the other let's talk about production really quick. So unlike number three, which was shot mostly on sound stages and using models, Nimoy was given a little bit more breathing room with the way that he was able to produce this film. And this film was mostly shot on location. It helps that most of the film happens in 1986. So they don't have to do a lot of like construction or model work. It's just San Francisco, right? That's where they go. And so especially the city scenes, like on when they're walking through the city or they're on the bus or at the they're at the aquarium, that kind of thing. They're using real spaces in which to film. What did you think about the look of this movie, especially compared to the last run?
1: It was a movie from 1986. It, <laughs> it didn't look, I mean, it didn't, it didn't look like a bad science fiction film. It didn't right. look like a science fiction film that was done on the cheap. It didn't look like a science fiction film that was trying to punch way above its you know, it's weight, which is what... That's number one. Right. Yeah, it it looked like a movie. It looked like a mid-1980s movie that had fantastic science fiction elements. Right. And the really, the other thing, and I, I don't know if you want to talk about this in terms of production, but if not, we'll just talk about it later. There's no enterprise... No Enterprise set. yeah, None at all. That's the only thing about this movie that would make it hard to show to somebody like in isolation, Mm -hmm. which is really how I saw it. So I guess it's not that much of a problem. But it's like, why are they? I heard that it was the Enterprise. Well, you see, in the last movie, they blew it up, but good.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Don't worry about that.
0: Yeah. Although at the end of this movie, it's. They're rebuilding it, right? Yes. They're making a new one. It's the Enterprise I mean, D. Yeah. They're
1: not on the Enterprise in this movie. There is an Enterprise. Right, right? at the end, yeah, right, where I, they're rebuilding
0: yeah. it. Yeah, they're on the captured Klingon vessel, which McCoy has hilariously renamed the Bounty after a Royal Navy ship, also featured in a fictional novel called Mutiny on the Bounty, right? Which is about the sailors taking over the ship from a sadistic captain. So, you know, McCoy being funny at that point, they even paint it on the side. Mm,
1: He does that. Yeah. He likes to be funny. Yeah. And we should let him.
0: Yeah, we should let him. Uh, I'd like to point out that everyone has more to do in this film. I feel like there's, everybody gets more, especially the minor characters, like Walter Koenig gets more to do, which he's been complaining about for, for several movies. Like all the care all of the main crew because it's such an insular film. We're not talking about new characters except for Amanda, right, who they go back in time and meet. We're not talking about Savick who gets left behind on Vulcan. We're not talking, you know, we're we're not doing something new. We're doing core crew members. They're in a smaller ship. They're going back in time and they have to accomplish this mission. So they all have more to do. So let's let's talk about that for a minute. Let's start with the the dream team as we called them, McCoy and Scotty. So they go back in time. They're here to get the whales. They split up. They they try to get into some street clothes so they don't look so conspicuous. (laughs) They have no idea what's going on or how to act in San Francisco. In 1986, McCoy and Scotty are tasked with trying to construct a tank in the bounty that they could use to transport the whales back to the 23rd century. So they go to a plastics manufacturer.
1: Yes. To quote the old dude from The Graduate, plastics.
0: <laughs> what did you think about McCoy and Scotty's side adventure?
1: If I can have any two characters from the Enterprise to do shenanigans with, this is who I'm picking. I mean, like, yeah. I if I can't have a throuple... <laughs> Which, frankly, I I don't know that I would take those three. It would be unbearable, and I'd want to die, which is probably the true secret of the red shirts. They just <laughs> didn't want to live anymore after having to deal with that nonsense. But anyway, I would pick these two because completely unable to to blend in, they still managed to make it work.
0: They seem like, like they under... talk
1: to a mouse... They still <laughs> made it work.
0: They seem, out of all of them, the most capable of running a con. Like you could
1: have stopped it. Capable. Capable.
0: Yeah, but like they they get to this place and they com- they successfully infiltrate. That's not true. Sulu does a pretty good job as well. But they successfully managed to convince. They are the most
1: successful duo.
0: Yes, they managed to convince this plastics manufacturer that Scotty is some big plastics engineer, entrepreneur, whatever, which Scotty can Not back up.
1: Not a lie. Not a lie.
0: St- Scotty can back this up, right? He's able to give them this formula from the future for like a lighter plastic that can that's stronger. And although again, time which, travel way, this issue, is a time
1: travel paradox, right. you cannot do this.
0: I do love that McCoy by the end of this is like, should we do this? And Scotty's like, how do we know he didn't invent it?
1: Right. I mean, that is the loophole. He wasn't giving the knowledge to himself. Right. He was giving it to somebody else, and that is the explainer. How can you, how do you know?
0: Right. How do you know?
1: If this dude takes the weird thing that happened that day to his grave.
0: Doesn't matter. Someone else will invent it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found this very interesting. So they exchanged this for a lot of plastic. And yeah, the scene where Scotty talks to the mouse and then tries to talk to the computer. No, actually, he talks, tries to talk to the computer first. And then, and then McCoy hands him the mouse. And and McCoy hands like, hands oh, him the mouse. talking to
1: this. Yeah. My and then bad. they're
0: like, no, it's the keyboard. And he immediately, while finger pecking.
1: Finger pecking. We were on a clean podcast here, but every week we managed to not sound like it.
0: Oh, my God. You get what I'm saying? He's like picking at the keys and still manages to type faster than anyone I have ever seen type in the history of typing.
1: (laughs) The fastest pecker in space.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. This is your fault. I know. Okay. So- (laughs) Originally part of this group, but he kind of peels off to do his own side mission is Sulu, who successfully he probably has the least to do out of all this group. But we still get the scene of him talking to a helicopter pilot and not only successfully convincing him that he's flown helicopters before, which seems a little magic to me, right? Like, how would Sulu know how to fly a helicopter? Maybe he talked the guy into teaching him how without realizing it. He knew. But he successfully talks him out of a helicopter Here's what I want to know. Is it Sulu's charm, or did he finally get a chance to like sleep with someone for information? Like, usually it's Kirk that does this. But I don't know. He was getting his flirt on with this helicopter pilot.
1: We'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never truly know. That secret will also be taken to the grave.
0: I'm just saying, like, there was some charming going on in that scene, way more than anyone else did. Even Kirk, who actually has like a legit love interest in this film,
1: and the award for most ill-conceived—how did you not think this through, duo?
0: Uhura and Chekhov.
1: Right. Right. Does
0: Kirk just not know any history?
1: Yeah.
0: And did nobody else think maybe we shouldn't put the black woman and the Russian dude on the streets of San Francisco asking about nuclear? Fusion. I I don't actually know what they're asking for. I mean, they're trying to find like a nuclear reactor, right? But they don't know exactly where one is. And so they're they're asking about it. Who thought that was a good idea? Kirk. Why? (laughs) Did we forget what the 80s were? Did we forget what the 20th century was?
1: Must have. Dumb idea.
0: Must have. Chekhov. So Walter Koenig finally did love this role. He finally felt like he was able to do some good work in this.
1: You know, I think the one legitimate complaint that you could make about these movies, like two, three, and four, and I'm trying to think, did this extend to the original series? And I don't really think so. There are no stakes in this movie.
0: I mean, the they're world not, could be destroyed. No, it's
1: not.
0: The wheels could be hurt.
1: No, they're not. You know everything everything's going to be fine by the end.
0: Well, yeah, it's Star Trek.
1: That's what I'm saying.
0: That's not the point.
1: I understand that. So, I mean, like, they got stuff to do, but it's hard to rise to the occasion in terms of acting when there really are no stakes.
0: Yeah, but there's there's some laughs being made here. There's well, some right, character. comedy
1: is fine, character work is fine, right. but what I'm telling you is, you know, he gets shot and almost dies, except of course he doesn't.
0: We get to see him get chased by a bunch of U.S. military,
1: right? I mean, personnel. It's, yeah, it's it's not like, again, to go to Back to the Future, right? It's, and of course that's different because it's the start of a franchise. But when you see Christopher Lloyd's character get shot at the very beginning of the movie. Right. He's, oh, God, this is terrible. And, you know, when Marty goes back to the future, there are the same stakes are still there. You really don't know what's going to happen.
0: Especially because he says he doesn't read the letter, right? right. He tears it up.
1: So you know exactly what's going to happen to these characters. Right. You do. Right. And so to make, I guess, the, the obligatory Star Wars comparison for the week, with the sequel trilogy, You can have twists and turns. You can have uncertainty. Or you can do what Star Trek did and not do that. Or you can do what Star Wars did and try to create that out of thin air, those plot twists, the unearned plot twists and character changes. So, yeah, it could be worse. I'm not saying the lack of stakes makes it a bad movie. I'm just saying, you know, they did fine.
0: Right. Right. But we also get Chekhov in the hospital. We get to see McCoy have more of a role again because he has to pretend to be a twentieth century doctor, even though he successfully cures a woman's kidney disease by giving her a pill.
1: Right. And this is the thing, like this is a fun movie. Right. And and these are character these are actors who know their characters are able to have a good time with it. No drama. It's good
0: comedy work. Like I don't think any of them had a bad performance in this, though. Like, they all were doing really funny things with what they were given. And just McCoy's absolute... He is not only over 20th century medicine by the time he even walks in the building. He's like, this is barbaric. This is like... What does he say? He's like, it's like coming back in time and finding them using leeches or whatever. So we we get our other duo, Spock and Kirk, who go to find the actual whales, right? And they get this lead because Kirk sees the billboard for the aquarium, right? That have two humpback whales in it in Sausalito. That's where it's supposed to be. And so they go, they meet Jillian Taylor, Dr. Jillian Taylor. I think I referred to her as Amanda earlier. That's Spock's mom. So that's, that's incorrect, but her name is Jillian Taylor. She's played by Katherine Hicks. This is interesting, I think, because Spock gets a bit of a reboot At the end of the last movie, beginning of this movie, because he's been dead. Right. And so he doesn't have amnesia. He remembers things that happened. Right. He we he goes through this series of tests at the beginning that determine that he is just as smart as he ever was. But he's having a hard time regaining that emotional connection to things, to people he, his intelligence is fine, but he's working on remembering those emotional connections. He's working on remembering those feelings of friendship that he has with Kirk and the rest of the crew. Him and Kirk kind of going off on their own is their own way of sort of talking through some of these things. But then also we get some more hilarity where Spock has to hide his ears, right? He wears that like 80s headband <laughs> over his robes that he's like elected to wear for most of the film He, as soon as he sees the whales, dives in and talks to one of them via mind meld.
1: Well, if you're directing the movie and you need lots of time to direct the movie instead of act in the movie, and when you have to act in the movie, you want to give yourself an easy load, I guess this would be how to do it. I mean, that's the thing. Like, Leonard Nimoy's, Spock's presence in this movie isn't a lot. I mean, he's there a lot more than he was in three, but he doesn't give himself a lot to do, which is probably a good choice. I mean, he went over the highlights. That's the highlight reel right there. But what and, he does
0: is solid.
1: Well, sure. But the whole point here is, well, we're not going to really spend a lot of time on the Kirk and Spock relationship in this, is some, but not a lot. And we need to dial down Leonard Nimoy's role so he can do more directing, which means we're going di- to oh yep, just seduce somebody. Got it.
0: What did you think about him diving into the tank and talking to the whale? And then when Jillian is like, what are you doing? He's like, "At talking to the whale. Go ahead. Oh, I, and I like that Spock had asked their consent. Like, they weren't just, he wasn't going to kidnap two whales and take them to the 23rd century. He was going to ask.
1: He did the logical thing.
0: Right. He wasn't going to repeat the s- mistakes humans did.
1: Stupid and, humans. And stupid, then, foolish humans.
0: And I like how he's like, oh, by the way, she's pregnant. Also, she likes you.
1: I like what this movie is saying is that humanity's trash, except for this one. She's cool.
0: We get both of Spock's parents in this movie. We only saw Sarek in the last movie, but we see Amanda at the beginning of this movie because she tells him, she asks him how he feels and she emphasizes to him that feeling things is important to him, that she is represented in his DNA as well as his father. We also get Sarek in a, what I think is kind of an emotional scene at the end, telling Spock that he made the right choice when he joined Starfleet, which if you remember from journey to, I think it's journey to Babel, journey to Babel, the episode where we first meet Sarek and Amanda in the original series Remember that was a big rift between them. Like they hadn't talked in years. He he has like an emotionally strained relationship with his father because Sarek wanted him to join the Vulcan Academy. He sees Starfleet as his son slumming. So it is kind of a nice like wrap up of that relationship to see Sarek finally be like, No, you made the right choice and I couldn't be more proud of you. Did you have any feelings about that? Did you even remember that was like a conflict between them from the original series?
1: No, I knew it was a conflict, but I mean, great. Okay. Hooray.
0: I just, I just, I thought that was interesting. We did it. What did you think about Dr. Jillian Taylor as a character and as a love interest of Kirk? They don't, you know, they. it's not as sexy maybe as the original series, but it's there.
1: I really like how all the way through the originals, we can't tell them. We can't tell them. It'll break them. We can't tell them. We can't tell them. They can't handle it. They won't be able to. Oh, you're Okay. Really from the future, huh? All right. Can I go with? Cool.
0: After the This is
1: somebody who's very well adjusted.
0: Yes, very well adjusted. Did you like all of the humor involving the cloaked Klingon ship in the San Francisco park?
1: We have fun. Yeah, like we have fun. There's a lot of Although I would have liked one shot of a dog just walking straight into it.
0: Or someone, yeah.
1: Bouncing off of it.
0: The other thing that we get in this is fun time travel jokes, as we mentioned. I like that Kirk sells his glasses for money, the glasses we saw McCoy give him in The Wrath of Khan, and he's like, don't worry about it. I'm going to get him again later.
1: That was such a weird scene. It was like, oh, this is going to be cool. This is really going to pay off something from... Does it? Really?
0: I like that none of them understand money. Yeah. Like, they fundamentally do not understand money. Right. I mean, why would they? I don't know. I think there's a lot of things that, I mean, there's a lot of fish out of water humor in this because they go back in time. They there's don't also understand. fish in water fish humor. Fish in water humor as well. I think one of the funnier gags in this, of course, is Spock trying to swear because Kirk gets it. He's like, you got it. You got to punch it up a little bit. Yeah. Spock does not know how to punch it up.
1: Pulling a Winston, either not not good enough or way too far.
0: <laughs> Classic new girl. Yep. Classic new girl. Yep. So, like you said at the beginning of this episode, one of the big themes is about how humanity is jeopardizing their future by hunting these species to extinction. There's a lot here about the how the humpback whales are actually a really intelligent species, which we know we know for a fact that whale song is its own language, although. We have, as of right now, no proof that they are actually communicating with an alien species via some sort of pen pal relationship. I like that that's the impetus of this film. Like, these aliens were like, where'd our pen pals go? We were worried about them. And it turns out they should have been worried about them. But as you mentioned, too, there is this idea of what we do now actually could jeopardize a future utopia.
1: We blew way past that years ago. To quote Taylor Leone, when David Duchovny... Phoned her as a friend on who wants to be a millionaire. You're so screwed.
0: What did you think about this idea of like environmentalism is actually an important part of utopian thinking and planning for the future? Because I mean, it's not just save the whales, right? It's if we don't save the whales, we may actually, there may be dire consequences for any future society that may want to have a utopia or at least act more utopian.
1: Season four of Heroes: mm. Save the Whales, Save the World.
0: Yeah, save Save the Whales, Save the World. Please
1: don't. Even though that's Zachary Quinto, so that's Spock, sort of. Yeah. Okay, so if you assume that Utopia is an actual place you can get to, which it isn't, you gotta work toward it, right? To create it. And, and there's there's no coincidence that a lot of like, like Lost Horizon, for example, and other pla- other. Stories where you stumble upon Utopia. It's just already there and you don't have to talk about it being created because it turns out creating Utopia is hard. But the neat thing here is if you think about the effort that it would take to create Utopia and you think about the fact that Utopia is not an actual place you can get to, both roads are the same. On the off chance that you can create a real Utopia... It's not You're not just going to stumble on it. It's not just going to happen one day. You actually have to do stuff. And the stuff you would do is the same stuff that you would do if you realize utopia is reaching for a better tomorrow. Not a utopian one, just better. So you have to ask yourself, is this good? Is this the right thing to do? It's called having an internal moral compass. It's called being motivated internally, not by external things, right? Which is why utopia and religion don't get along. You can't use a religion to to motivate you to make you do the right thing. You have to want to do it or you're going to be looking for cheats. And so, you know, the whole idea here is that thinking about ecology, not just destroying the planet, not just using it as a practice playground For hypothetical paradise in space or the clouds or whatever, right? Think about it like it's the only world you have and treat it right.
0: And I think, too, there is an emphasis in this film. I think they do a really good job, actually, of being like, you know, humans share this planet with other creatures. And those creatures aren't less important than humans, That's a very religious idea, right? That humans are the most important and that we're here to take care of them or whatever. Although we forget about that last part a lot. But like the idea of like the humpback whales. I mean, Spock has a whole conversation with them. He sees them as worthy of like giving consent to this plan, which they readily give. Get
1: us out of here. Yeah.
0: yeah. Especially because they're about to be released into the wild. And that's a very tense scene, right? When they're released in the wild, the crew of the Enterprise on the bounty are, are trying to rescue them from these People who are about to kill them. Like, it happens so fast. They get released and they are immediately, like, on the radar of whalers. So fast. Mm-hmm. And there's a really funny moment where they shoot the harpoon, but it kerthunks off the yeah. <laughs> off the bounty hole. There is one person who is not present, who I would say is a major part of the Enterprise crew. Majel Barrett does reprise her role as Christine Chapel, the director of Starfleet Command's medical services by now. She is in the Starfleet Command central headquarters that are being like destroyed by this ecological disaster being caused by the probe. But she's only in a couple of these scenes, right? She barely has any dialogue. They did film more scenes with her. Some of them reportedly quite large scenes, but they were omitted in the final cut. She was very, very angry about this, which is interesting because it not only, I think, to me, shows how much Gene Roddenberry had been written out of Star Trek at this point because she is married to him, right? Like the whole point was, is that he was incorporating her into this. And I don't think that would have happened if he was still had a huge presence in it. But also I think it's interesting that at this point we've decided that Christine Chapel is not a main part of the crew, even though she shows up in a lot of episodes, probably as many as like Chekhov or, or some of the mi- more minor members, maybe not Uhura, because Uhura is in a lot of background shots. But you know what I mean? Like I think it's interesting that this is the point where we seem to have decided that she's not a major part of the crew anymore. Do you have thoughts about that?
1: Well they also dumped uh what's her name? The one that they were trying to make a main character.
0: Janice Rand?
1: Kirsty Alley, Savick. It was not Kirsty Alley, right? Yeah. I mean, I have more of an issue with her being left out because you did some work to try to make her a real character. Couldn't you take her along? It's basically signaling, "Nah, we were wrong. We really shouldn't have done that." So I'm actually more bothered by that. So I guess that just really says something about, you know. You're talking about a fine background character, but I never considered her, and maybe that's a result of this. I never considered her to be a main character.
0: Well, she's not talked about like a main character, even though you've seen TOS and you know that she has a lot of- Sure. A pretty big role as a background character.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah, I just think that's interesting that nobody thinks of her that way, and I think it's in large part because of these films. But, I mean, I'm not saying that's Nimoy's fault. I'm just saying I think that's interesting. So actually I these it's interesting you bring up Savik too. That was actually for a production reason in a very it's a very strange story because originally in one of the first scripts for this film, she was going to be pregnant. Like like young Spock in Ponfar got her pregnant and that's why they were leaving her on Vulcan. But that got left like, that got written out fairly quickly in the in the rewrite process. But it's weird that they didn't... They were just like, okay, I guess it's fine that she gets written out this way. Like, it was going to come back in, like, a later way that she was pregnant with Spock's child. But then they just never did that. But then they also never incorporated her back into the film, which I just... Odd. All of it's odd. But that was the original intent there.
1: Still better than the first one.
0: The other thing, the other thread that we haven't talked about yet is sort of the bookends of this movie, because of his actions in Search for Spock, Kirk is on the bad side of the Klingons, even more so than usual. Usually he's on the bad side of the Klingons, but now they're real mad, right? And so they come to the Federation and they basically say, like, you have to do something. There has to be consequences. He attacked a Klingon ship. He killed its crew. He took over, blah, blah, blah. And Sarek, of course, is defending them, saying, like, you know, well, that crew attacked him, they killed his son, you know, like all of these things. And so we get to actually see a sort of trial, right? That That's what the, what, what the voyage home is, right? They're returning home to stand trial for this. You know, they they did mutiny, too, against the Federation. They stole the Enterprise in order to go get Spock. So the consequences of this are that Kirk is demoted to captain, which is another thread that's been running through these films is that he doesn't, he's not a particularly good admiral and he kind of just wants to be captain. It feels like he's getting more, maybe more rewarded at the end of this film than punished.
1: Well, I think that's funny because, you know, and this is something obviously playing out in uh, real life for, for me now, as we've talked about it, right? Like upward, moving upward in a career is generally perceived as a good thing what if you hated it right and so in a utopian society you should just be able to go my bad never mind you know this this storyline is really a holdover from where we are now saying that that moving upward in a career path is the only acceptable thing And and of course, since we've been hanging out with the Enterprise ragtag motley crew of hooligans, (laughs) we know the secret, right? We're in on the joke. But the whole thing is you're not, I don't really think you're supposed to think that Starfleet's in on the joke. No. Like this is a serious consequence. You have been demoted. You should be ashamed of yourself. And they're like,
0: (laughs) suckers. Yeah, it's, it's. Very interesting to me the way this plays out. And of course, they're given the Enterprise, right? They're all demoted. They're given the Enterprise back, which is what they all want, really, the whole time. And it's very exciting. The one storyline that does escape this movie, though, to go on to future that, might, that will have future consequences is that the Klingons are genuinely talking peace with the Federation, right? And they use that as a way of leveraging a punishment for Kirk. They're all like, if you want this to continue, Kirk has to be punished. Thoughts about... Us ending this Cold War metaphor with the Klingons or at least moving in that direction.
1: When does Next Generation start?
0: Okay, the first episode for Next Generation was 1987, so the next year after this movie.
1: So unless there was a huge firewall in in between those two things, I mean I look at this, and what I thought when I saw the movie was, "Oh, look, they're gonna they're gonna do the thing, so they can have a Klingon in Next Generation, right?" Which they do, right?
0: Right. Yes. This is that. Although i I will say the Klingon Federation tensions are not gone in Next Generation, but they're not at war. They're they are things yeah, are going well. But this seems yeah.
1: like, it, from what I know about Next Generation, this seems to be like the one and only. Seeding of something that is important in next generation. Right. Yes. Because otherwise it'd be weird. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, like, I don't know if we, I don't know at what point, you know, I, I know certain things, right. At what point during the next generation, do you know that Picard and Kirk have lived at the same time?
0: Pretty early on. Right. I'm not so going to give anything away, well, that's but pretty early saying. on. It wouldn't yeah. make
1: any sense. Right. You know, if, if, so it's actually a good continuity thing. I, and I don't really care about it beyond that. I don't know. I mean, that that's it's, fair. I mean, that's it. It's right? just,
0: it's interesting that at this point, even Nimoy, who in the third movie saw, he wanted to talk about the Klingons and wanted to use the Cold War metaphor. Even at this point, he's like, the Cold War's wrapping up. We have to like talk about peace. So I, I just thought that was interesting. We also get our first female captain that we see who the first ship that gets depowered by the probe has a black female captain in the captain's chair. Again, like Gene Roddenberry's vision of a post-race society. I think that even though he had this vision of it, there was only so much he could do on television. Right. And so now we're actually starting to push forward with that and say like, no, we can actually show this on screen. So that I think is also interesting. I didn't mention this at the beginning, but uh, Horner is out at this point. He's, he, he has moved on to bigger and better things as far as writing music. Uh, so Nimoy turns to his friend Leonard Rosenman, who had written the music to Fantastic Voyage, and Ralph Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings, the animated movies, and the two Planet of the Apes sequels. So that's where we get these, this music. Of course, he's also still building on Horner's themes. He's not just coming up with these ideas from scratch, but he does do some fun things with the music that are his own. Overall, what do you think of this film?
1: Like I said, I think it's the best one so far. And I mean, it's a good 80s movie. I mean, that's what. what more do you want? And, 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 okay, I'll give you one more. So mm-hmm. that's two things. Again, one, it's the best out of the four movies. You've assured me that next week, I'm not going to say that five is going to displace it as the best movie. So that's fine. Two, it's a solid 80s movie. But the the perhaps the best, it's not faint praise. I think the best thing to recommend it is, does it make me want to watch more or less Star Trek? Right? Because that's always the thing, right? If you're trying to get somebody on board with Star Trek, you don't. That's why we only watch certain episodes of the original series. You don't want somebody walking away going, oh, uh, do we have to watch more? It's Like, oh, good. That was good. So this was that.
0: Well, I I was thinking about it when you kept saying like, well, would I show this one to somebody first or would I show Khan to somebody first? Putting aside five and six, which we haven't seen yet, do you think Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock and Voyage Home make a decent trilogy?
1: Yeah. And it's funny because this is one of those. This is like the anti-Star Wars, right? Where the middle movie is the weakest, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, as opposed to, say, Empire and Last Jedi. and. I guess the three people out there who think Attack of the Clones is the best one.
0: But you didn't think Search for Spock was a bad movie. You just thought it was the weakest.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's like Back to the Future 2, uh, which is generally seen as the the weakest of the trilogy. It has... it's, you know, I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people do, and it does have its proselytizers, I guess. But, but yeah, it is the weakest of the three, but you could do this as... I mean, it really is a three-film arc, right? Right. And it's neat in that way because it begins with a wrong and ends with a right. Yeah. You know, like, Kirk messed this up. Kirk got this right. It's actually pretty good in that way.
0: Yeah, I I never thought about them as an actual trilogy before. But all of the storylines that are... If we... You pointed out that the second movie is really the reboot, right? The first movie tried to reboot it. Didn't really work. Yeah, second it, movie does. It was Rhett. <laughs> so if you were to show people these three movies, it would be a complete story. And we end with the enter- them getting the Enterprise back, right?
1: Join us next week for my first The Next Generation episodes. We're done, right? No that, more. That's it. No that's more. it. That's There's it. no that's more. That's it. We're just going to end it on a high note.
0: Actually, we have two more movies before we can get there. So next up on Sam Watches Star Trek, Shatner gets his own movie because if we know anything about Star Trek actors is that they don't get jealous of each other, demand the same treatment. He gets his own movie with Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa and you can find Sam at Sam underscore Morris 9. Until next time.